You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I am about to, or I am going to, die. Either expression is correct. These were the last words of 17th century French grammarian and man after my own heart, Dominique Bonheur. It's right up there with the 18th century aristocrat, Le Marquis de Fabra, who pronounced, I see you have made three spelling mistakes, as he read over his own death warrant. We assign a great deal of significance to last words. We expect them to be deep and profound, the sort of thing you immortalize on a $3,000 headstone. We hope when it's our time that we'll say something really clever and not, what does this button do, or hold my beer. But you may end up with last words like American author Henry David Thoreau, who said simply, Moose. Indian. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts Many people think Irish playwright and poet Oscar Wilde's last words were, either this wallpaper goes or I do. That would be typical Wilde, but there are two small factual inaccuracies there. The actual quote is, this wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death, either it goes or I do. And he said it a few weeks before he died. Oscar Wilde's actual last words were a mumbled prayer. He did also say toward the end of his life, as he lay in bed sipping champagne and someone asked what he was doing, he said, I am dying beyond my means. With about a third of the world's population being Christian, it's not surprising that God gets mentioned a fair amount. When the priest performing last rites for Charlie Chaplin reached the line, May God have mercy on your soul, Chaplin replied, Why not? After all, it belongs to him. In a bizarre twist, Chaplin's body was stolen from a cemetery in Switzerland by men who demanded the equivalent of $600,000 ransom from Chaplin's widow. Thankfully, the body was recovered and the culprits arrested. As the clock was winding down for one of Golden Age Hollywood's baddest divas, cancer-stricken Joan Crawford, her housekeeper began to pray aloud at her bedside. Crawford summoned her remaining strength and snapped, Don't you dare ask God to help me. A priest was at the bedside of Francois-Marie Aurette, the philosopher and firebrand better known as Voltaire. The priest implored him to renounce the devil. Voltaire considered this advice, but decided, This is no time to be making new enemies. German romantic Heinrich Hein took a different view as he lay dying of tertiary syphilis. God will forgive me, he said. That's his job. A quick tangent. While the undead have been in our collective fears and folklore since the caveman days, 
our modern interpretation of zombies is strongly influenced by the ravages of syphilis. Its body count is paltry when compared to things like the Black Death, but the five million people it killed in the 15th century alone definitely qualify it for epidemic status. Syphilis comes in distinct stages. Primary syphilis is characterized by painless sores on the genitals or mouth, which typically heal on their own. The second stage usually presents with a rash and fever. These resolve and the disease goes into the latent stage, which can last for years. You're not infectious in the latent stage, but the bacteria may still be damaging your heart, bones, nerves, and brain. People in the latent stage would think that they were no longer sick, which was just as well since there was no cure at the time anyway. In tertiary syphilis, the third stage, the skin may be covered by growths that break down into lesions and spread unchecked. The disease can eat away at bone and cause tremendous pain. Patients also suffer numbness and difficulty controlling muscle movements, vision problems that sometimes lead to blindness, and dementia, courtesy of neurosyphilis. This left Europe with people shambling down the cobbled streets with their faces rotting off. If you bumped into such a person under a ruddy gas lamp on a London alley, you'd probably be willing to believe that they were a corpse that had gotten loose of its grave. We'll save the debate for the spread of syphilis, whether it began in North America or Europe, for another day. We know people's last words because someone was there to hear and record them. Sadly, that wasn't the case with Albert Einstein, one of the greatest scientific minds of the 20th century. He wasn't alone in the room when he passed away, but he understandably spoke his final words in his mother tongue, and the nurse that was attending him didn't speak German. Perhaps his final wish was something along the lines of, don't let anyone steal my brain and keep it in their desk for years. As you can probably guess, that's precisely what happened. But that's a topic for another day. Many people can feel the end coming and leave prophetic pronouncements behind. Reputed future seer and tabloid staple Nostradamus correctly forecast Tomorrow, when the sun rises, I shall no longer be here. Similarly, the godfather of soul, James Brown, said, I'm going away tonight. Less a prediction than a timely assessment, noted English surgeon Joseph Green declared, It's stopped, after checking his own pulse. The OG of horror cinema, Alfred Hitchcock, left us with a sort of non-prediction. One never knows the ending. One has to die to know exactly what happens after death, although Catholics have their hopes. On the other hand, there are those who refute the seriousness of their situation. When former president and all-around son of a birch, Andrew Jackson, was laid low, to the point that his right side was paralyzed, and his daughter wanted to summon a doctor, he insisted, I need no doctor. I can overcome my troubles. Likewise, singer Barry White said, Leave me alone, I'm fine. Actor Douglas Fairbanks said, I've never felt better. And Emperor of Debauchery Caligula simply shouted, I live, to name but a few. My favorite example of this comes from a man called Mr. Organic, healthy eating advocate Jerome Rodale. He appeared on the Dick Cavett talk show in 1971, declaring that he'd never felt better in his life and he'd 
decided to live to be 100. A minute or two later, he slumped slightly in his seat while Cavett was interviewing the next guest and died of a myocardial infarction. Frank Tight-Lips Gusenberg lived up to his name to an insane degree. When he was shot during the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, a police officer asked Gusenberg who shot him. In response, he said his final words, Nobody shot me. Truly living up to his belief in not squealing, no matter what. The highest-ranking Union officer to die during the American Civil War, Major General Sedgwick, chastised the men in his command for reacting to Confederate sharpshooter fire as they placed artillery in preparation for what is now known as the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. I'm ashamed of you, dodging that way, he snapped. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. He had barely gotten the word distance out before a bullet struck him in the face. His end was closely paralleled by William Bucky O'Neill, whose varied and successful career came to an end while serving as a captain in the Rough Riders during the Spanish-American War. As he walked and smoked in front of his men, in full view of the enemy, the sergeant pleaded with him to take cover. O'Neill blew out a cloud of smoke, laughed, and reportedly replied, Sergeant, the Spanish bullet isn't made that can kill me. A moment later, he was shot dead. The reverse was true for World War I Lance Sergeant Hector Monroe. Put out that bloody cigarette, he barked at a fellow officer while in a trench, for fear that the smoke would give away their position. A German sniper heard his remark and picked him off. Two different musicians also made incorrect predictions about the danger of firearms. It's okay. Gun's not loaded. See? These were the last words of blues singer Johnny Ace. Some reports hold that he was playing Russian roulette, though a witness claims Ace was drunk and playing with the gun. One bullet was left in the gun of Chicago guitarist Terry Kath, who'd been pulling the trigger on empty chambers of a 38 revolver at a party. The trouble really began when he switched to a 9mm pistol. He showed off the empty magazine and said, Don't worry, it's not loaded. He apparently hadn't cleared the chamber. Ironic last words and car crashes go together like cat hair and clean clothes. The last known words of Ryan Dunn, one of the founding members of MTV's Jackass, was a text reading, Stopping for a beer, be there when I can. More beer was the last thing he needed. After crashing his car while doing over 130 miles per hour, Dunn's blood alcohol was found to be .196, almost two and a half times the legal limit. Speed kills. There's no arguing that. You would hope a person would learn after filming six movies about driving entirely too fast. Paul Walker, whose last recorded words were the sadly inaccurate, we'll be back in five minutes, was doing 80 in a 45 when his car hit a telephone pole and burst into flames, killing him and his passenger. It's from the passenger and mechanic of Rebel Without a Cause star James Dean that we learn the actor's last words. A second or two before his Porsche Spider, nicknamed Little Bastard, crashed into a more substantial Ford sedan, Dean said, That guy's gotta stop. He'll see us. The tragedies didn't end with the crash, though. Many people believe that that Porsche 550 Spider is irrefutably cursed. The wrecked carcass of Little Bastard was sold at an auction for $2,500, 
and soon after, it slipped off its trailer and broke a mechanic's leg. The engine and drivetrain were sold to two different buyers, who later raced each other in cars containing the parts. One lost control and hit a tree, killing him instantly. The other was seriously injured when his car suddenly locked up and rolled over while going into a turn. Two of the tires from the 550, which were untouched in Dean's accident, were sold and blew out simultaneously, causing the new owner's car to run off the road. The remains of the spider also caught the attention of two would-be thieves, one of whom tore his arm open while trying to steal the steering wheel, while the other was injured trying to remove the bloodstained seat. Due to all the accidents involving Little Bastard, the owner lent it to a highway safety exhibit. The first exhibit didn't go so well, as the garage that housed the car caught fire and burned to the ground. Mysteriously, though, the car suffered virtually no damage from the fire. There's more to the story than that. If you enjoy listening to stories, I highly recommend the weekly podcast, Stories of Your and Yours. That's Y-O-R-E, like old-timey, and yours, like yours, mine, and ours. Host Sean Ennis reads classic short stories in a very pleasant-to-listen-to voice. It isn't just the standards that you read in school. If you're an author, you can send your short story to syypodcast at gmail.com and be part of the show. Look for it on your platform of choice. If you're listening on an Apple product, please leave a review. Whether you write out a whole review or just click a star rating, those few seconds you spend are a real help to new podcasters like Sean and myself. The first review we received at Your Brain on Facts was from user that one guy you know him who said I'm a big trivia nerd and this podcast is perfect for me and people like me Moxie has an excellent voice for audio work and an incredibly entertaining eye or ear for detail she covers a wide breadth of subjects and taught me something new about each one do you like history it's on the podcast music yep gaming absolutely I feel safe in saying as this is a fairly young podcast, that if she hasn't covered a subject you're interested in yet, she probably will. And you'll have fun listening to the other episodes on the way. Thanks, that guy. I'd put that on a t-shirt, but it would probably take up the whole front and the whole back. It often takes tragic events to bring about change. Since that fateful day in 1963, when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, U.S. presidents no longer ride around in open-top cars, in addition to a number of other security enhancements. President Kennedy, Texas Governor John Connolly, their wives Jackie and Nellie, and two Secret Service agents rode in a convertible limousine through Dallas. You can't say the people of Dallas haven't given you a warm welcome, said Nellie Connolly. Kennedy replied, No, you certainly can't seconds before bullets ripped through the cool November air. Other presidents have also given us memorable last words. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson had been compatriots before becoming political rivals. John Adams' last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. What Adams didn't know was that Jefferson had actually passed away a few hours earlier. They both died on the 4th of July. Millard Fillmore leaves us with, The nourishment is palatable, commenting on the soup he had just been fed. 
History doesn't record the last words of Presidents Pierce, Taft, Hoover, Ford, and Reagan, but we do have the last words of Founding Father Benjamin Franklin to share. A dying man can do nothing easy, Franklin said to his daughter, who suggested that he might be able to breathe more easily if he lay on his side. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Some of the best documented last words in the modern era belong to those executed by the state. There's an immediate curiosity when you hear about an execution to know the person's last words, as well as what they requested for their last meal. The first person to be executed after the United States reinstated the death penalty in 1976, ending a 10-year moratorium, was Gary Gilmore, convicted of killing a motel manager during a robbery. Gilmore wholly accepted his death sentence. Against his express wishes, Gilmore received several stays of execution through the efforts of the American Civil Liberties Union. At a Board of Pardons hearing two months before his execution, Gilmore said, they always want to get in on the act. I don't think they've ever really accomplished anything in their lives. I would like them all, including that group of reverends and rabbis from Salt Lake City, to butt out. This is my life, and this is my death. His last words were simple and to the point as they positioned him in front of a volunteer firing squad. Let's do it. If that phrase rings particularly familiar, it's probably because advertising executive Dan Wyden credits Gilmore's parting words as the inspiration for Nike's tagline, Just Do It. Also sentenced to die by firing squad for robbery-turned-murder, Joe Hill's last word was, Fire! Preempting the executioner's ready-aim countdown. Also accepting of his fate was Wesley Allen Dodd, convicted of molesting and killing two children. I was once asked by somebody, I don't remember who, if there was any way sex offenders could be stopped. I said no. I was wrong. 
It's cold comfort, but there's something to be said for self-realization. At his own request, Dodd's 1993 execution was by hanging, the first in the U.S. since 1965. I'll be in hell before you boys start breakfast. Let her rip. Those were the last words of Tom Blackjack Ketchum, convicted murderer. He probably shouldn't have been in such a hurry, though. Too much slack was left on the rope. When his body dropped through the gallows and the rope finally went taut, he was decapitated. The job that hangman did would not have pleased serial killer, rapist, arsonist, and burglar Carl Pansrum. Without ever showing any sign of remorse for his crimes, he refused to appeal his sentence, even threatening to kill members of human rights groups who attempted to appeal on his behalf. Hurry up, you Hoosier bastard, he yelled at the executioner. I could kill ten men while you're fooling around. Lavinia Fisher and her husband-slash-accomplished John were executed for their roles in a series of murders that took place at their tavern. While her husband was busy begging the crowd for forgiveness and putting all the blame on his wife, Lavinia took a slightly different tack. If any of you have a message for the devil, give it to me, for I am about to meet him. Lavinia then trumped her executioners by jumping off the scaffolding and hanging herself before they could do it. Sitting on death row gives people a lot of time to plan their last words. James French was already serving a life sentence in an Ohio prison when he killed his cellmate in 1966 to convince the state to execute him. Strapped into the electric chair, he said, Hey fellas, how about this for a headline for tomorrow's paper? French fries. His pun comes four decades or so after one George Apple was sentenced to electrocution for murder of a New York City police officer. Well, gentlemen, he said, you're about to see a baked apple. Keeping the pun in Capital Punishment. Capital Punishment. Them without the capital get the punishment. So says John Spankelink, drifter convicted of murdering his traveling companion, though he claimed it was self-defense making him the first man to be put to death in Florida specifically after the reinstatement of the death penalty. Similar in sentiment was Barbara Graham. Good people are always so sure they're right. Graham and two accomplices beat an elderly woman to death when a robbery went bad. When she was strapped into the gas chamber, her executioner told her, Now take a deep breath and it won't bother you. To which she responded, How would you know? Carefully selected quotes are a good choice for last words. Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh left behind a handwritten statement quoting the last lines of the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. He chose not to speak in the death chamber. California's first execution in decades was Robert Alton Harris in 1992. You can be a king or a street sweeper, but everyone dances with the Grim Reaper. His last words were a misquote from the film Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I did not get my SpaghettiOs. I got spaghetti. I want the press to know this. Before Thomas J. Grasso was executed by lethal injection for robbery-turned-murder, he took his last meal request very seriously. His order? Two dozen steamed mussels two dozen steamed clams, a double cheeseburger from Burger King, barbecued spare ribs, 
two strawberry milkshakes, half a pumpkin pie with whipped cream, diced strawberries, and a 16-ounce can of SpaghettiOs with meatballs served at room temperature. For whatever reason, the kitchen served him actual spaghetti instead of SpaghettiOs. Speaking of food, a quick word from our sponsor, Squeezy Cheese, the processed cheese food product in a tube. When it's almost cheese but not quite, it's Squeezy Cheese. This episode was originally going to be the last words and last meals of the condemned, but the scope started to change when I began writing. That doesn't mean it won't happen later. After all, one man requested a single olive with pit, and another wanted a clump of dirt with grass on it. How can I resist doing an episode about that? Last Words can be an ideal platform for one final F.U. to show those in power that your spirit will not be broken. Giles Corey was among those accused in the infamous Salem Witch Trials, but he wasn't going to make it easy for them. According to colonial law, a person who refused to enter a plea could not be tried. Their remedy for this was a process where the accused was slowly crushed by rocks until the plea was given. Giles Corey was placed between two wide boards, and the stones were heaped on him. He spoke only two words, though he said them repeatedly until his last breath. More weight. As deacon in Rome, soon to be St. Lawrence, was responsible for the material goods of the church and the distribution of alms to the poor. When he informed the prefect of Rome that he'd given all of the church's wealth to the poor, the prefect was so angry that he ordered a large gridiron prepared with hot coals underneath and had Lawrence thrown on it. Legend holds that after some time, Lawrence cheerfully declared, I'm well done on this side, turn me over. He would be made the patron saint of cooks, chefs, and comedians. You can also use your last words to leave messages of love or your thoughts on life behind. The first name in reggae, Bob Marley, told his son Ziggy before he passed, Money can't buy life. Children of the 70s and 80s will remember Michael Landon from Little House on the Prairie and Highway to Heaven. Fans were shocked when he announced he had terminal pancreatic cancer. Before he died, he said, You're right. It's time. I love you all. Another classic TV star, Leonard Nimoy, left us with, A life is like a garden. Perfect moments can be had, but not preserved, except in memory. L-L-A-P. Live long and prosper. In the spirit of factual accuracy, I should mention that this was posted on Twitter, but I'm still counting it. Love one another. According to his wife and son, George Harrison, my dad's favorite beetle, succumbed to lung cancer in 2001 after passing on this final message of love. I guess it's all you need after all. Many last words are about, or to, the love of the dying person's life. I'm going to be with Gloria now, said actor Jimmy Stewart to his family just before dying in 1997, referring to his wife of 44 years, Gloria, who had passed away three years earlier. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle died at 71 in his garden. He turned to his wife and said, You are wonderful, then clutched his chest and died. Writer T.S. Eliot 
was only able to whisper one word as he died. Valerie, the name of his wife. When actor, comedian, and lovable curmudgeon W.C. Fields died in 1946, his last words were to his mistress. Damn the whole friggin' world and everyone in it, but you, Carlotta. Likewise, Australian composer Percy Granger's dying words were to his wife, Ella. You're the only one I like. As Jolt and Joe DiMaggio lay dying, he said, I finally get to see Marilyn again. Though he and Marilyn Monroe had only been tumultuously married for less than a year, and she had died 37 years before him, he had never stopped loving her. In the last year of her life, Marilyn was near emotional collapse, and her doctors had her admitted to a mental hospital. During her four days there, she was subjected to forced baths and a complete loss of privacy and personal freedom. The more she sobbed and resisted, the more the doctors there thought she might actually be psychotic. Joe DiMaggio rescued her by getting her released early over the objections of the staff. I'll give you five minutes to get her out here, said DiMaggio, or I'll tear this effing place apart brick by brick. Another account holds that he shouted, Give me my wife. The stars of Hollywood have given us as many bon mots as they have films. Humphrey Bogart proclaimed at the end, I should have never switched from scotch to martinis. Oh, you young people act like old men, said Josephine Baker as she left a party the night she would die of a stroke. You're no fun. When Bob Hope's wife asked him where he'd like to be buried, he said simply, Surprise me. Well, this is no way to live, proclaimed comedy legend Groucho Marx at the end. Groucho's brother Leonard, better known as Chico, gave instructions to his wife as his last words. Remember, honey, don't forget what I told you. Put in my coffin a deck of cards, a golf club, and a pretty blonde. Stan Laurel, of the iconic comedy duo Laurel and Hardy, told his nurse, I wish I was skiing. She said, Oh, Mr. Laurel, do you ski? No, he replied, but I'd rather be skiing than doing what I'm doing, shortly before he died of a heart attack. Somewhat more fun than Henry David Thoreau's two-word non-sequitur was actress Tallulah Bankhead's cocaine, bourbon. Bankhead said a lot of memorable things in her life, like that she only threw two temper tantrums in a year, each about six months long, or cocaine isn't habit-forming. I should know. I've been using it for years. I've had a hell of a lot of fun and enjoyed every minute of it, said Errol Flynn just before dying from a heart attack in 1959. The swashbuckling actor, dead at 50, was buried with six bottles of whiskey. Donald O'Connor was a singer, dancer, and actor who hosted the Academy Awards in 1954. When he passed with his family gathered around him, he joked, I'd like to thank the Academy for my Lifetime Achievement Award that I will eventually get. He still hasn't gotten it. Now that Leonardo DiCaprio has his, let's get Donald O'Connor an Oscar. Come on, Internet. Famous playwright Eugene O'Neill was born in a Broadway hotel on what is now Times Square. He lay on his deathbed at a hotel in Boston. His last words were, I knew it. I knew it. Born in a hotel room, and damn it, dying in a hotel room. 
Charles Gussman was a beloved writer and announcer who worked on the soap opera Days of Our Lives. Upon his deathbed, he reportedly removed his oxygen mask and told his daughter. And now for a final word from our sponsor. Drummer Buddy Rich died after surgery in 1987. As he was being prepped, the nurse asked him, Is there anything you can't take? Rich replied, Yeah, country music. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. As I said at the top, we assign a great deal of significance to someone's last words. Well, most of us do anyway. Karl Marx had a different opinion. No big surprise there. He said, Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. So I guess we've said enough for this week. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word penal. Penal. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.